It's been awesome to see. Um, we're going to be going through, sorry, Exodus chapter 11 and part of 12. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles there, that's where we're going. Um, it's just awesome to see God take this little thing um, that was Church of the Mind and to bring new people to sing. And even though Brad's not here, we got people that can fill in and, and help us to worship God. And it was uh, it's cool to see. I was not excited to preach this passage of Scripture because it's very long. And uh, I didn't really know where I was going to go with it, or I should say where the Lord was going to go with it. But by the time I got done, I was very excited. Um, I got excited because of a conversation I had with my son, actually, my oldest son. And I told him that he should probably be in church first service because I'm going to talk about him. He likes to hear me talk about him. But my oldest son is named Fisher. And people always ask, why would you name him Fisher? And I really don't have a reason before we conceived um, that young man, I wanted to name my son Fisher, and I thought it was cool, and Caleb thought it was freaky, but by the time he came around and he was born, I had said it so many times that she thought if we named him anything else, it would be weird. So his name is Fisher, and he's a little stud. Uh, he always reminds me that he is my firstborn, and therefore he gets my birthright when I die, and he talks about that a lot. Um, I keep telling him that there's not much to my birthright, but he can have all of it, and uh, he can... He brags to his brother that he will not get, um, but maybe he's like a little Jacob and will take it over. I don't know, but he, uh, he's excited about that. He's an artist, and I say that I was an artist in a past life. I used to draw all the time, and I love drawing and painting. I really haven't got to do much of it, um, but my son is an artist. When he wakes up, he uh, draws nonstop from morning till night. He draws and he draws and he draws. We have reams, I mean reams of pictures I mean, there's kids that kind of draw. He draws all the time, just piles. Um, his, his grandma got him just paper and notebooks as part of his Christmas present because he just draws and draws and draws as I put a new book together, a new book together. Very creative. And um, the thing about him drawing is that his favorite thing to draw is Star Wars. Kim, my wife thinks he's obsessed. And he might be because I really like Star Wars. But he draws Star Wars nonstop especially things with heads getting cut off and lightsabers and death and all that stuff. He likes those aspects, which is really great for a pastor's kid. And his favorite thing, though, uh, at school is to draw Star Wars. And his teacher notices, and so his teacher is like talking to uh, Kayla and said, maybe we could encourage him to draw something else. Because every free minute he gets, he draws Star Wars. And so I talked to him, I said, can you draw something else? And he said, yeah, I'll try and so one day he came home and he said, Dad, you're proud of me. I said, why am I proud of you? And he said, because I drew something else other than Star Wars today. I said, fantastic. What did you draw? He's like, well, I drew what I played at recess. Awesome. What did you play at recess? Star Wars. I was like, we're getting better. We're getting close. So I convinced him recently. I said, why don't, we, why don't you try and draw some Bible stories? He's like, oh, I might be able to do that. I said, okay. How about the Exodus? He's like, like the plagues and stuff? I was like, Sure, that'd be good. And so he decided for, he started drawing the Exodus, and his teacher noticed that the first one he did was the Nile turning to blood, and he likes blood, and so he's like really excited about that. But he uh, now is drawing all the plagues and the boils and the flies and all these things, preaching to his student friends at his table. It's great, and ask them all if they believe in Jesus, and I love it. But recently, like this week, he said, Dad, and he's looking through this New Testament, like, it's kind of like a comic book, but it has just scripture in it, so I like it. And uh, it's based similar to what we use for our kids, uh, some of the younger kids in Exodus. And 
he was looking through it and he started going through the story of um, um, Matthew or the book of Matthew and actually all the Gospels. And he got to the story of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist gets beheaded, very intrigued by that story. No lightsaber there, but very intrigued by the beheading. Why did he get beheaded? What, you know, all this stuff. And so as, we're drive, as I'm driving him to school, he says, you know, Dad, if I was going to draw some Bible stories, I think I'd like to draw the Gospels. In the, in the New Testament that he'd been reading. I said, well, why is that? He said, because they're about Jesus. I said, well, they are about Jesus. But it was an interesting kind of entrance to a conversation about what the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Bible are about. I said, well, those are about Jesus, Fisher, but every book from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. And... You have to understand, son, as I'm talking, it's all one big story with one hero and one climax and one conclusion that begins and ends with Jesus. And I think his little mind and maybe that expression of what he was thinking about the Gospels is pretty accurate to, I think, how a lot of people approach the Bible. Maybe even particular Exodus as these separate stories that are just kind of disconnected and they teach us a lot about God and we learn about in some books how he's really wrathful and just kind of kills a lot of people. And over here he's really gracious and loving. That's why we like to talk about Jesus because he's, you know, meek and mild, but he never really says anything mean except the parts where he's condemning all the religious people and calls them empty tombs full of death. But we don't read those passages. But we read these in segmented things and we don't realize that from Genesis to Revelation, the story is all about Christ. And so as we, I go into this Exodus 11 and 12 and reading it, you read it and you go, this is all this old Jewish stuff. This is what the Jews are all celebrating. They celebrate it today. And, and what does that have to do with, with us? And as I just sat on it and read it over and over and over again, and thought about all this stuff that because I grew up in somewhat of a halfway Jewish home, what that all meant and it brought the most amazing sense of depth and richness because I understood what the stuff meant that gave light and pointed to the ultimate meaning in Christ. And I think that if we dismiss any little bit in the Old Testament as just a story, you will miss the layer upon layer upon layer that God has kind of given us to understand exactly what's going on in Jesus Christ. And so it's awesome. So I'm going to go through a passage in Scripture that is um, crucial, the whole book of Exodus is, but just essential to the life of the Jew. This story is, is declares and identifies and is a beginning for them of who they actually are in faith. But we have to understand that Christ is both Jewish and the fulfillment of all this stuff. And it just is incredible. So I'm going to fly through chapter 11. And then I'm going to go through 12, and I'm hoping that you get that richness and you see what I'm talking about, as long as I get out of the way and let Jesus speak. Here we go, Exodus chapter 11. Uh, let me just read this 10 verses, and I'll explain it. And we'll get into 12, too. Chapter 11 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. 
And Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, which has never been nor ever be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all these your servants shall come down to me, that being the Egyptians, and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So to set the stage backwards a little bit, Moses is summoned to Pharaoh after what is the ninth plague, which was darkness that could be felt, which is just a cool description. So dark they stayed in their homes for three days, scared to leave. He's summoned before Pharaoh, and it's Pharaoh's last attempt to give a compromise to get his people out, or to let Moses' people go. And he says, go ahead, take your kids, take your brides, take your men, but leave all your cattle. And Moses says, no way, not a single hoof is going to be left in Egypt. We're all gods, every part of us. And so Pharaoh gets enraged more than he ever has yet, and he says, get out of here. If I see you again, you're dead. The next time you're in front of me, you will die. And it goes into chapter 11. We feel like Moses just ran out, but he didn't. There's a few last words for Pharaoh. And what he gives him is somewhat of a preview of coming destruction. It's like, before I go, let me tell you this. Since the Lord speaks to him, he says, one more plague. He's telling Moses this. This is the last one. It's the first time he's been told this. And then he's going to let him go. But what Moses doesn't realize, but soon does, and I think that's in large part why he leaves so angry, it's going to be devastating. And no one, not even Moses, wants to see the devastation that's going to happen to this nation of children and adults dying. It's going to be the worst of worst plagues. And he starts to tell what it's like. And he says, it's going to affect everybody. From the educated, to the uneducated, to the rich, to the poor, to the employed, to the unemployed, to the blue-collar workers, to the white-collar workers, to the men, to the women, to the spiritual, to the unspiritual, to the people who are famous and powerful, to the people who are unknown. Everyone, human and animal, boy and girl, is going to suffer in some way the firstborn will be taken from all those things. But I'll protect the people of Israel. They won't be touched. Not even a dog is going to snap at a single Israelite so that you'll know I'm protecting them. And he says, and afterwards, when that's all done, the Egyptians will want you out so bad. And he's declaring this in front of Pharaoh. He says, your servants, Pharaoh, are going to come and bow down before me. Moses is speaking. And not just 
say it's okay to leave. They're going to force us out. Get out of here. In addition to giving us all their wealth. Or we're going to leave rich. And in the final verse of chapter 11, the final verse is kind of a summary of all that happened. Because Moses does go out. He's angry. That's it. It's the last time he really sees Pharaoh. Until he's chasing him towards the Red Sea. It's a summary of the exact same thing he said back in Exodus 7 that said, go do these wonders, say these things to Pharaoh, but he's not going to listen to you, which for me just speaks to the amazing faith of Moses. Go do this, no one's going to listen. It's like Jeremiah. Go tell them the truth, no one's going to listen to you. What a fun job. And Moses goes, and he doesn't listen, it gets worse and worse, and God says... Don't worry, his heart is being hardened so that I can proclaim my full name. Everything that I am. I will let you display every bit of my wonders, including this. And we look at this and we go, oh, brutal. But God is declaring in all these ten plagues, and in every book of the Bible past this, all the way till he finally states fully who he is in Jesus Christ. This is who I am. Worship me. And Pharaoh was just... A tool, if you will, for him to do just that. So between chapter 11 and the actual plague, so he warns of the plague, and between the plague is where we're going to spend our time today, where there's a little bit of an interlude, because he's going to protect the Israelites, but there's certain things they have to do in order to be protected. There's certain preparations that are going to take some time and he's going to give the instructions to Moses, who's going to give the instructions to the Israelites, specifically the elders, who were going to actually perform them. And so we get this description of the preparations needed to protect and also commemorate what's going to happen. So we get into Exodus chapter 12. And here's what he says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on earth, I'm sorry, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, and put on the doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, and they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven, or yeast, out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened for the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. On this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month and evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. And for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If a person... I'm sorry, if anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, and you shall eat unleavened bread. And in the verses following that, which I'll touch on briefly, he repeats those instructions with a little more specific details or different details to the elders. So, what's described here is what he calls the Passover feast. And the Passover feast, I've celebrated it once, still celebrated today with conservative, orthodox, and reformed Jews. My particular family is reformed, which means they're very loose in their use of the scriptures and the literal interpretation of them. But it's a complete Seder, you probably may have heard that term Seder, complete meal, of similar to what's being described here. As time has gone on and the temple has been removed and the sacrificial system's kind of been done with, they've had to elaborate. And so if you ever have a Seder, which by God's grace, if we actually have some other space than this, in April we will have our own Seder to celebrate this and it'll be awesome. But it's a complete retelling of the story of the Exodus in every little bit. And this is the moment that God institutes it. It's called, you'll see it called different things. The Passover really is considered the first day of this seven-day feast, and it's really called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you'll see in the New Testament and the Old Testament this reference to Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and they're really talking about the same thing. But it recognizes, and God says it's going to, It memorializes the moment that God releases them from Israel. It commemorates that they are, in fact, saved and redeemed from this oppressor physically into freedom and go to the promised land. And it's much more than just like a Thanksgiving meal or a happy birthday dinner. This is something that commemorates the fact that they have become and were released to be a nation that is centered, whose identity is centered on the worship of God. Which in this world, in our culture, seems really strange to think about. But that's really the beauty, I think, of Judaism and what Christianity is supposed to be. A culture, a faith whose lives, or the people who are part of that, have lives centered on the worship of God. And so this feast, they say, or God says, is going to be the day where you begin a new identity. And I was almost going to preach the entire sermon on the first verse. 
Because the first verse for me is the thing that smacked me upside the head the most, which is a good way of saying I was really broken by it. And what he says is that today is your first day. Today is when your calendar begins. I probably will butcher the word, but the month was first called Abib, A-B-I-B, and now it's called Nisan. Nisan. That's the Jewish month they're talking about. And it starts today, he says. See, up until this point, their lives were dictated by the Egyptian agricultural calendar. What they did, how they worked, and what gods they worshipped was dictated by the seasons. When did we plant our barley? When did we plant our flax? When do we do our worship to the Nile goddess so that it floods and those types of things? It was all dictated by paganism and it permeated every aspect of their lives because they were, in fact, slaves. But God redeems His people and saves them and frees them into a completely new identity in every respect and says so much that your very lives begin and are signaled by this day, the day that you are free. And you will commemorate this day once a year, every year, for the rest of your lives. And the identity was central to their lives. Everyone has their calendar, right? Kaylin, my wife, we have Google calendars now. They like mix together. Google's like, oh, beautiful thing. By stocking them. But we have like three calendars that mix together. And our lives are often dictated by those calendars. What's on the calendar? Well, it wasn't on the calendar. You know, you get in trouble if you're, some, you're doing something. Was it on the calendar? It doesn't exist if it's not on the calendar, right? It is driven. It used to be a calendar with like all kinds of stickers and drawings on it all over. Now we've got digital, so it's like all kinds of colors and stuff. But... We are dictated by that calendar in the same way these guys are dictated by their calendar. Their entire lives, every step, everything they do, when they do it, how they do it, why they do it, is now governed by a time frame centered on the fact that God saved them. What a beautiful picture of a new identity. And so this year, the calendar, the religious calendar for Jews, begins... In April, and on April 8th, it's actually the very back end of March, because they don't go according to it, so it's the back end of March. April 8th this year is the Passover. And that will be celebrated for seven days through the 15th of April. And it adjusts every year. And not only do they have a shared identity with this calendar, but they have a I'm sorry, a new identity, but they have a shared identity. In verse 3 and 4 it says, call the congregation together. It's the first time they've used Israel as this this new assembly language. They're called together as one community, one body, even though they're meeting in a bunch of different homes. Because God is not simply redeeming persons. He's redeeming a people. And these people have a shared beginning They have a shared identity. They have a shared purpose to worship together. And what brought them together 
was the fact that they are all people who were enslaved. And they were all people who were freed. And they all together find their common identity in that fact. They're all people who experienced a level of suffering and an amazing, miraculous, incredible redemption that brought them together. It's kind of like, have you ever seen the people on Survivor? I've applied, well actually I didn't fully apply. I filled out the application twice because I really want to go on it. Now it's kind of stupid, so I don't think I want to go. But I did for a while. And for 30 days, these people spend time starving and suffering and hating each other and loving each other. And it's just a weird thing. But if you ever read about what happens after Survivor, is that these people go through these experiences and they're like best friends forever. Because I guess when you starve to death with somebody or close to it for 30 days and you barely have any clothes on, and you see the best and the worst of everyone, that brings you together. The men that, that help plant this church, for example, it is not like a super pleasant experience, to be honest with you. It's joys, and it's also terrible hurts and pains. It's like this mixture. But if it all ended tomorrow, I would have these brothers who have this shared, amazing experience that no one else has. And we go, Wow. I know, you know, oh man. That's what brings us and bonds us together. And so, they have this new identity and they have this shared identity and it's all centered on God. It's not centered on the individuals. It's all centered on God. So, he calls the groups together. He says, I want you to do three things. Here's what I want you to do. First and foremost, I want you to get a lamb. Or it could be a goat. But it's got to be a year-old goat. Now, a year-old goat's pretty much a full-grown goat or lamb that could participate in the flock. It's not like a teeny little baby thing, although we kind of get that vision. It's pretty much full-grown. And it had to be perfect. It had to be perfect quality, meaning it couldn't have some weird spots, couldn't be, like, lame, couldn't have any kind of blemish. It had to be as perfect as they could find, the best of their flocks. And halfway through the month, so they have some time to find it. Halfway through the month, I want you, he says, to kill it. To slaughter it at sunset. And I think there's a beauty, and although the sacrificial system that that came with the temple kind of changed this, there's a beauty in these men leading their families in, in, in doing this. But the question is, okay, what do we, we, we killed this thing, what do we do? Oh, you're going to use this blood. And so we'll go into verse 21. It gets a little more specific how the blood's being used, although they already said what they're going to do with it. In verse 21 it says, And Moses called the elders together and he says this, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in this, like a, it's like a weedy, twiggy branch thing. Okay. and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. So I want you to catch all the blood as you slaughter this yearling. And then you dip it in there. And then touch the lintels and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And the lintels and the doorposts, lintel, doorposts of the door, door frame. And swipe it on there. And he says... 
None of you shall go out of the door in his house until morning. So they do it at sunset, so they stay in their house all the way till sunrise. Don't leave. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. He shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. So the blood then protects the firstborn, just very literally, from death. They smear this blood on the doorframe. It's not the angel of death. It doesn't say that. People kind of like, oh, the angel of death. What is that? Well, the destroyer, the God also says, I'm coming through. So whoever that is, whether it's God or he sends an angel, God's doing it. I'm going to go through and kill everybody. I see the blood on your door. You won't be killed. Your firstborn will remain alive. But if anyone comes out, not even the firstborn, you peek your little toe out, I'm killing the firstborn in that home. So stay in your house. And yes, there's all kinds of meanings with the blood. You can talk about how it's life-giving and all those kind of symbols. But the blood of the Lamb stops or appeases or satisfies or protects from God's wrath simply because He has declared that the shed blood of this Lamb will protect you from my wrath. Not because the lamb is like, you know, we should be looking for magical blood in lambs somewhere. It's because God has said it. That's why he's accepted it. And it's not really that God needed a sign. It's not like, oh, there's blood there, better not go in there. It's not like he needed that sign to know who was faithful and who was not. He's not blind to that. He is omniscient, all-knowing, knows everything. I believe that the blood is in fact, although declared by God, a benefit for the people who are actually participating in it. Because it takes people's faith from just words, yep, I believe in God, to actually having to do something. There's action attached to it. They have to go do the blood to demonstrate, I believe. I believe not only that God has the right and power to kill, but I believe with the blood, that He will save me. It's a demonstration of faith. It's a proclamation of faith. Some might argue it is faith itself. Because if they don't put the blood, they, oh yeah, the blood will protect us. Did you put it on there? Mm-hmm. No, I believe. Stupid! You are dead! It's not faith. And then, not only is supposed to sacrifice, he says, okay, you're also called to eat a couple things. Okay? First thing, so I want you to eat the meat. Roast it, and various commentaries talk about why you're roasting it. Most likely is to get rid of all the blood. Make sure there's no blood there. Blood's being used for something else. But the first thing I, I like is that they make sure that they don't have the meal before they spread the blood. Because the first thing that anyone, especially the Israelites, have to deal with is God's wrath. That's the first thing. You have to do something with an angry God. What shall we do with an angry God? Appease Him with whatever we want? No, appease Him with what He says will protect you. We have to, I think, fight ourselves from believing that the Israelites are actually good people. Because God protects them. The Israelites, as difficult as it might seem, because you want to play the compare game in your mind, 
The Israelites are just as sinful and bad as Pharaoh. They are just as sinful and bad as Pharaoh. They are just as dirty and broken as Pharaoh. The difference is, although God showed mercy to everyone, even Pharaoh, by not wiping them out, He showed grace to this one people. He still showed mercy to all of them. But He showed grace and protection to this one people. But they were still imperfect, still broken, still dirty, still unacceptable. But God makes a way for His wrath to be dealt with, but also that they might become acceptable, even righteous. Because in order to relate and be with a righteous, perfect God, you have to be righteous and perfect. And that's not going to happen unless God makes a way. We are, there's nothing within ourselves, nothing in this world that will enable us to be perfect. But man, we sure try. We all know it's broken. We've known because it's all one story since Genesis chapter 1. You go one and two and things were wonderful. Things were perfect. We had all kinds of great good food. We had good drinks. We had good sex. You had all these things, but you didn't have any gluttony. You had no alcoholism, no lust, none of those things. It was great. So we all have this sense and know that there's some place we're supposed to get back to. And that's what the world is trying to do oftentimes by itself. Even many in the Christian world try to do that by themselves. All kinds of books coming out and they have nothing to do with the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ and everything. Here's how you can feel better about you. How to have a better you. There is no more better in here to get better. It's all bad. And Genesis 3 proves that. That's why God has to make a way. And through this sacrifice, through this animal, He says, I'm going to make a way for the Israelites to be protected from my wrath. And as you eat this, and then you eat this unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread is bread basically without yeast, for lack of a better description. So it's, they call it matzah today in the, uh, in the Jewish Seder. And it's like big crackers that have not been allowed to rise with yeast and they're cooked. And most people will say, well, the reason why we eat this, and they even say this at the Jewish Seder, it's two, kind of twofold meaning. One is that we had to leave in such haste that it didn't have time to rise. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's accurate in its description and reminder of the, of, the, of the time. But they eat it for seven days. That's a lot of matzah. Seven days. And Jesus and Paul both talked about leaven in the New Testament as something else. Yeast is created, basically. You put flour meal back in, in the first, uh, actually, account of yeast, incidentally, is in ancient Egypt, which is kind of strange. Um, not really in God's eyes, but one of those God incidences. And they put flour meal in water and they let it sit out and kind of decay and ferment. And that's how the yeast would be created. And they would take the yeast and they would put it in the bread and the bread would rise as they let it sit and then they would cook and have bread. Well, Paul and Jesus talked about leaven, but they never talked about... They always referred to leaven as something that was evil, as it was sin, as it was something that was corrupt and decay. Always saying, you just have a little bit of leaven in there and the whole thing gets big. 
little bit of sin, they were very clear about it. A little bit of sin can corrupt the whole mess. And in many ways, I believe, for seven days, every day of the week, right? For an entire week of their life, they're eating unleavened bread to remind themselves of what happens, I believe, when you tolerate sin just a little bit, you immediately become imperfect. And this bread, in many ways, is free of all of that. And so by eating this meat and this bread, God, in many ways, not only just covers their sin in terms of, I'm going to forgive you, but then gives them more. It makes them more acceptable so they can have relationship. Just covering the wrath doesn't bring them into relationship. They still go back to square one and need righteousness. They still need perfection. You eat of this lamb, this perfect lamb, you eat of this what is perfect bread, and you will be acceptable. Not because it's tasty. There's nothing more tasty about a perfect lamb than an imperfect one. It's all the same meat. There's nothing tasty about unleavened bread. If you have matzah, trust me, it's no good. Maybe with some peanut butter on it, but you can't do that, okay? It's no good. But it makes them acceptable simply because God has said, this will make you acceptable. Now, you're like, okay, what does that have to do with us? We're getting there. We're almost there. And the last thing he tells them, last two things. First of all, eat in haste. Eat fully clothed. Eat with your sandals on, your staff ready, your coats on. I can barely, my kids won't, you know, barely eat dinner, and they'll definitely not eat with their pants and coats and hats and mittens on, okay? Eat it with haste to remind yourself that you are ready to go. And you've got to think, it's hard for these Egyptians, even if you tell the Israelites, you're going to be free. They're thinking about that, but they've been in this country, this nation, for 400 years. It's all they know. Even if it's slavery, it's all they know. And you know that people would rather oftentimes stay in that situation because it's familiar, rather than go out into the adventure where they know is right, but it's scary. So he's reminding them, no, be ready to go, because as soon as this goes in the morning, you're out of here. And again, it's requiring them, because you can imagine them, I'm not going to really dress like that. I'm not going to put my shoes on. We'll have time. Again, it is an act of faith that has to do with, do they really believe that this, it's been nine plagues. Do they really believe this is it? Do they really believe that they're going to be leaving after this plague? And so they eat in haste. And then they say, remember this day forever. Remember it by having this feast every year. And when your sons, later in the chapters, when your sons ask you why you do this, you remember to tell them everything that happened. This is the most important thing for you to remember. That God freed you from your slavery though you didn't deserve it, and maybe you didn't even believe that He would, but He freed you into His promised land. You did nothing to earn it. You do not deserve it. But He showed you grace, and He saved you in the most amazing way, crushing the most powerful nation on earth to do it. And not only that, He leaves you not just with nothing, but with riches. With riches. With wealth. And so Jesus then, fast forward, 1,200 years. Jesus as a Jew, with Jewish disciples, 
celebrated the Jewish Passover every year of his life. For 30 years, he celebrated it. And when he was baptized and started his ministry, he celebrated every year again for three years of his ministry with his disciples. And every spring, they would go through the process of what's been instituted for them and have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, memorializing what God had accomplished. And it wasn't a celebration of just routine like we do this. And maybe for many it was. It was like gathering as the church for a lot of people. Just a routine. Taking communion. Just what you do. But this is key to their identity is who they are. And for 1,200 years they'd celebrate this. But then on one night, on Passover night, Jesus gathered his disciples. He had just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey a couple days prior to this. They had celebrated the coming of the king. The same people celebrating were the ones who would be killing him a couple nights later. And he gathered his disciples. And he said, let's celebrate Passover. Because that's what the day was. And it's recorded a couple different times. We're going to read it out of Luke. The four Gospels tell the same story from four different perspectives, but it's the same story of Christ. We're going to read it out of Luke, the doctor, in Luke 22. And if you understand the significance of this feast, you understand the significance of what Christ does in this moment and how he changes everything. It says this in Luke 22, Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John, this is verse 7, chapter 22. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us. I've got to prepare all this stuff we just read about. That we may eat it. And they said, Well, where will we have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, also known as the upper room, where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He said, I'll show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the night he will be arrested. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they eat and saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here Jesus institutes a new sacrifice. He in many ways will fulfill and always fulfill what the Passover pointed toward. The Passover was always intended to be temporary. Always intended to point towards this moment in history. The scriptures say, 
that Jesus was sinless. It means he never did anything wrong. Not one. Nothing. He was tempted as we have been in every way, the Scriptures say. He suffered, as the Scriptures say, in every way, and much more than us in many ways. But he was betrayed by his friends. He was denied by his family. He was falsely accused. All kinds of ways. Beaten. But he never once sinned. And this young, if you want to figure out sheep years, I guess there's something you could do there. It's kind of like dog years, I guess. But without question, as a yearling, he was in the prime of his life. He was male. He was perfect. And he was the only sinless man that qualified him. And God said, I will accept him as a sacrifice. And all that was instituted in the Exodus and all that was celebrated by Jewish culture for 1,200 years came down to this night and this moment. And John the Baptist saw it coming. He was walking. John the Baptist was sitting with his disciples. He had just baptized Christ. And he's walking. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. He's like, Jews understand exactly what he means. The Lamb of God that does what? That takes away the sins of the world. This is Jewish culture. They're like, there's only one Lamb they know what he's talking about. Are you joking me? That his blood shed on the cross. Christ's sacrifice. Isaiah speaks of the like a sheep led to the slaughter, silent before his shears. He goes and he sheds his blood. Why? So that we are protected from the wrath of God that we deserve. But there's more. There's the bread. And Jesus said that. We're not just protected from this angry God. We are given righteousness. We are given that sinless, perfect life that Christ lived. We are just given it. Christ was very specific. He institutes a new meal. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And in John 6, he said, I am the living bread. People freaked out when he said this. What are you talking about? And they'd forgotten. Check it out. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. What are you going to eat them? What are we, cannibals? So they missed the point. The bread that brought perfection, the same thing that the unleavened bread pointed towards and was trying to direct them towards all throughout history. See, we're not just protected. On the cross, He sheds His blood. We no longer have to have the wrath poured out on us because He takes it all, but then He gives us righteousness. He gives us purity. He gives us perfection. The very things that we desire to get from all those self-help books. He gives us all of it so that, and this is what blows us away, should God sees us as perfect when clothed in Christ. He loves us as His Son. He sees us 
reconciled because He reconciles us, brings us back to that relationship we had in Genesis 1 and 2. And it should change everything. It should bring us such incredible joy like it would feel to be freed after 400 years of bondage. And He calls us, Jesus does, to remember this every time we gather together. You wonder why we don't talk about it more. Why so many churches don't celebrate Passover or the Lord's Supper or Communion every single Sunday. Why you wouldn't want to. It's remember this day. Just as God said, remember this forever. Remember this day. This is your exodus. This is what it's all about. And so we have a changed identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, You're a new creation. The old is gone. Just as He said when He said, Today is the first day. Today is the new day. You become a new creation. Our salvation is not living better so that God loves us. It's accepting the fact that you can't live good and that God loves you even though He sees everything you've done. It's nothing you can achieve. That's not the Gospel. Gospel is not by works. It's simply accepting what Christ did, what God did to bring us back to Him. That's why it's a free gift. And that's probably why we have such a problem receiving it. We don't take gifts very well. We always feel like we have to give something back. We just need to accept it. And when we do accept it, it transforms our life. It doesn't just reform our behavior. It begins by transforming our life, which means we actually live as people who have transformed lives. And so our calendars change. And this is where it just hit me, because... It feels like so much that our faith is just a date on the calendar. Sunday, 9 o'clock. Your faith, just like the Jewish culture, is not intended to be something on the calendar. It is the calendar. It directs everything we do. How we work. How we live. How we recreate. That is the calendar of our lives, but it feels so much because of, honestly, our weakness. It just becomes that day, that event, that opportunity. I'm going to schedule in this for you, Jesus. The calendar is all His. When He transformed your life, He said, today is your first day and the rest of your calendar is full. It's full. But he also said, not just a new identity, it's a shared identity. We are no longer alone. We go from being alone in the dark by ourselves to becoming fellow citizens and members of a beautiful family with a super strong dad, with brothers and sisters that maybe we never had, maybe a father that didn't love us, but a father has given us everything. And He loves us and together we are saved. And together, as difficult as that is to believe, the Bible preaches that together we grow. And together there's a beauty and a a purpose for us to worship. And together we go out into the world. It's not as individuals. 
just as Israel didn't get freed individually. And we have one shared experience. It's not what we wear. It's not how we talk. It's not how much money we have. We have the shared experience that we, we see. It reminds me of when Aaron and I went to Holland. We were in this train station. All these European people running around. I don't even know if anyone speak English. Okay, They probably all did, but I thought they didn't. You know, There's one guy. He was an American. I could tell because he was wearing like fatigues and he was just like, you know, and he was lost too and we saw it, met eye to eye. And he didn't know what we were doing. Was, so we started talking to him and it was like, ah, both American. Yeah, where's the burger? I don't know, but hey, we figured this out together. There's a shared identity there. And as Christians, we're supposed to have this shared, common experience where we, the thing that binds us together is the fact that God saved us and that He loves us and that makes us look at the world completely differently because we're all covered by the blood of Jesus because we are all enslaved to sin. See, we forget that we are all enslaved to sin and we begin to look down on the world thinking, well, you're choosing that. Why don't we view it as slavery? I realize that there's choice involved. But the Bible speaks very clearly about the power of sin. But we are all enslaved. We are all unable to save ourselves. We are all dirty and broken and rebellious. And we are all worthy and still worthy of His wrath. And yet, yet He loves us. And He died to free us. And if we accept what Christ did as our sacrificial lamb, as the bread that gives us life, He cleanses us. He gives us a new identity. And just as He did in Egypt, He crushes, crushes, destroys. I mean, I don't know how you can destroy something more. He crushes sin and death so they no longer have any claim on our lives. So whatever sin, brokenness you have in your past, it's dead. It's been paid for. Throw it on the cross. Let it die. And the sin that now enslaves you doesn't have to. In Christ, it's done. He crushed it. And if we fail, I'm sorry, even if we fail, we remember that He already knew we would. And He waits for us to return to Him to be covered again and again and again and again. It has no control on us. But it doesn't end there. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that we've been given reconciliation. God has brought us back to this place where we're reconciled with Him. And then He's given us a message of reconciliation. And so we go on to the world and we don't say, Hey, be good! We go, no, this place is enslaved. God has freed you. Our message is God has freed you. God loves you. God wants to save you. How? Where? Jesus. And so we ask all of us, as we take communion every Sunday, we ask ourselves, what is the central value of your life? What is the defining thing of your life? What is the thing that directs all other things that you do?
Not the thing that's just piggybacked on top of all the other things that you do. What are we called to remember? What are we teaching our children? What do our neighbors see? What is really the core of our life? Are we that renewed, fulfilled culture that at the central core of their life is the worship of God? Is that I am a worshiper? That's our calling. And it's a beautiful one. I'm going to pray today. and If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, or you've been faking the funk for I don't know how many years, it's time to end it. I pray that you will accept that Christ died on the cross for your sins because you are enslaved and indebted in a way that you cannot do anything. That you accept that He died for you in your place and that He does more than just protect you from pain and give you in fire insurance. He gives you righteousness and joy and new life today. And if you accept Christ, then by all means, please join us in communion. But if you have not accepted Christ, if you're continuing your rebellion, I pray that you'll repent. But don't take communion. The Bible says you'll just pour wrath upon yourself. Confess. I love it. We'll close with this. Paul says to Philippian jailer in, in, in Acts, earthquake happens. Jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners have freed themselves. He says, no, 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 kill yourself. We're still here, man. Relax. And in that moment he says, what do I got to do? Confess and believe. You'll be saved. It. I'll pray that we all will. Father God, we confess, Lord, we confess that we are broken and rebellious. We confess, Lord, that we have desired all things that are not you. And we declare and proclaim that you have freed us, Father, in your Son. We give You praise for sending Your Son to shed His blood just as the Lamb was sacrificed for us. To cover us, Father, from the wrath that we deserve for our disobedience. But Father, we also declare that Christ is the reason why we can be with You and be reconciled with You in fellowship. He is our perfection, Father. So when You see me, I pray, Lord, that You will see Jesus. You will see His righteousness and not my own because it just ain't any there. May you receive glory and honor. May we remember, Lord, your Passover. May it be central, central to our lives. In your Son's blood we pray through your Spirit. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us?